Good morning, Christ Community Church. Well, let me talk a little bit about today's portion of scriptures, unity. And unity is one of those concepts in our country that we kind of have an unusual relationship with. On the one hand, we love being able to agree and be wholeheartedly unified with others. I mean, this is an ideal. Who, who wouldn't want that? To, to see eye to eye, to, to be sharing a common purpose, to rally around the same objectives and committed to the same goals. Uh, when you see unity happening, it is amazing. If you've ever watched a sports game and all the players on the field are just where they need to be, like the playbook says, they are just acting in concert we often say they are playing as if they were one man on the field. And if you've ever seen a game like that, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, you hear couples say these kinds of things. So whether they're married or dating, they might say that their spouse or their boyfriend and girlfriend, that they're just, they're one. You know, they finish each other's sentences. They know what the other's going to order off the menu before they even say anything. They dress alike without even talking to each other which is really creepy, right? I, mean, I don't know how that works out, but it just happens. We love the unity, the solidarity that comes from being unified, comes from being one. On the other hand, we don't want it to be hard work. We just want to be together, and we want it to almost be seamless or transparent. We want unity to be effortless, because it almost seems as if, if you actually have to work to be one, that it actually shows that you're actually not one. So to have to work to maintain unity seems like it's not unity at all. So we have this odd relationship with unity. We love it, but we don't want it to be a lot of work. Well, you know if you've ever had to work with anyone or had to be unified in anything, that unity is hard work. It's just the way it is. And unity is extremely important work. And unity is fragile, isn't it? It is hard to get, but easy to lose. It is beautiful when you have it, but a nightmare when you don't. And so for that reason, any church cannot, or any group or organization cannot afford to take unity for granted. And as Paul is launching into this fourth chapter of Ephesians, he knows that these people cannot take unity for granted either. And so this morning, we're going to see how Paul writes about unity, and we'll learn many things about it. Uh, One of those is that, that unity has four separate elements to it. Unity has this inward component to it. Unity has this upward component to it. It has an outward component, and it has a downward component. That's what Paul is writing in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, and I have it outlined on the screens behind me. You'll see that at the end of the day, unity is a heart issue, verses 2 through 4. Unity is grounded in the Trinity, verses 4 through 6. Unity is strengthened through diversity, verses 7 through 11, and finally, Unity leads to ministry, maturity, and stability. So unity is a heart issue. It's grounded in the Trinity. It's strengthened by diversity through diversity, and it leads to ministry, maturity, and stability. Let's pray and begin our study of God's Word. Father, we thank you that you have not left us on our own to figure out this thing called the church or life. And Lord, we thank you that you never dodge the tough issues but you're always putting front and center the things that matter most. 
Lord, forgive us for being distracted, distracted from what matters most, often by things that matter least. Lord, we want to have eyes and ears to hear what you have to teach. What you've taught our brothers and sisters in this church in Ephesus so long ago are the same kinds of things you have to teach us today. And we pray we would receive them and apply them for your glory in our good. Amen. First thing I want you to notice uh, in a primary thing that Paul writes is that unity is not a matter of structures and external behavior patterns or practices, but a matter of the heart. Notice how Paul begins by speaking of the heart in verse 2, mentioning these characteristics like humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, we might call that forbearance, and love. In chapter 3, verse 17, Paul wrote to these Ephesians, he prayed for them that he prayed that they'd be rooted and grounded in love. Now, he appeals to them that they would live a life of love exemplified by these very virtues in verse 2. This is where the Ephesians were called to begin, and this is where we are called to begin. But too often in churches in America, we start with external behaviors, don't we, and patterns and structural questions, and these things have their place, but if you have to choose between structures and patterns and the external and the moral qualities of the heart, Paul puts his emphasis on the moral qualities of an individual's heart. As he says, he wants them to walk this manner and describes the ways by which they will maintain the unity of the Spirit is through humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. To focus on the things that don't matter is to miss the point. Let me just illustrate it with... uh, Uh, For example, if I were to have a trellis in my backyard by which I wanted to grow a beautiful vine, you would think that it was really odd if I spent all my time, all my energy, all my resources making sure that the trellis was clean and and sturdy and well-built, beautiful, proportionate, symmetrical, and yet I would neglect the vine that I'm actually trying to have the trellis grow upon. You would say, likely you'd be right, that I'm missing the point of why I have a trellis and a vine in my backyard. The point of the trellis is not to be a beautiful trellis that which everyone admires. The point is the life of the vine that is growing on the structure of the trellis. That's why it exists, for the vine, not the other way around. Now, that's an obvious example, but we do this kind of thing in our churches all across our country, don't we? So, for example, some might rely too much on the way churches function, written procedures and processes, and and ministry is reduced to this kind of formality and compliance to the way we agree to do things. Ministry in this model is just being busy doing good church activities and church things. Now, those who tend to make this error are the kinds of people that typically have been in churches for long periods of time, and and they were a part of setting up those good processes and procedures. They are comfortable with the status quo, and to them, maintaining the unity is, is, uh, they think, excuse me, unity is maintained when things don't change because that keeps them involved. Now, on the other hand, Others rely too much on spontaneity and personal experience. So they'll reduce ministry to just personal style and autonomy. Now, ministry in this model is reduced to doing your own thing in your own way. Now, people who tend to make that error tend to be in the category that are relatively new to a community. 
they're not familiar with the history. They're not a part of the procedures and processes. That's not the important thing. The status quo is not that important. They think unity is maintained when things actually change because that change can involve them. Now, in the best-case scenario, both these groups of people want the exact same thing, don't they? They want ministry to happen. They want the name of Christ to be proclaimed. They want lives being changed. It's just that they have radically different ideas about how that is going to be best accomplished in the life of the church. Now, in the worst-case scenario, both sides want the same thing, don't they? They want everyone to do things the way they think it should be best, and usually the way that's best is in accordance with their own personal way of doing things. Right? So one errs on the side that it's too institutional. The other errs on the side that it should be too individual. But neither of those ways of living and functioning our church is what the Bible teaches because neither of them get to the heart of community and unity, and that's the heart, which is where Paul starts in verse 2. You see, the gospel shows that unity is both institutional and individual. It's institutional because each of us has been called to a people, right? And whenever you get a group of people together, there's an institutional feel that must happen by necessity to order your lives together. But it's also individual because each of us has been called to a people. It's not one without the other. It's not either or. It's and also. Now, when it comes to unity, I'd love to give you an axiom that also applies to many things of the Christian life. Actually, almost any core issue of the Christian life, this axiom applies, and it's this. What's going on inside of you is always going to be more important than what's going on outside of you. Let me say that again. What's going on inside of you is always going to be more important than what's going on outside of you. In other words, if there isn't what I think to be unity on the outside, but if there is this growing virtues of humility, gentleness, forbearance, and love, that's actually more important because I will act out of those things. Conversely, if there's a community around me that's bearing fruit and gentleness and love and forbearing with one another, but none of that's going on in my heart, it doesn't really matter either, does it? So what's going on inside of me is more important than what I see going on outside of me. I think a great example of that would be uh, the doctrine of sin. It's so much easier to point to the sin outside of me and to excuse the sin inside of me. But if I'm more concerned about the sin in my own heart and much less concerned about the sins in your heart, the way we are going to relate is going to be fundamentally different, isn't it? And so what's going on inside of us is usually more important than what's going on outside of us. For example... When we misunderstand unity in this way, that it's, it's an issue of the heart, what we tend to reduce unity to is uniformity. And it's a big difference, isn't it? And so because we don't understand unity is about my heart, and we think it's about the structures and the external aspects of life, we bring in uniformity. And so, hey, everyone should kind of think the same way. Everyone should dress the same way. We should all like the same kinds of music. We should all like the same way things done a certain particular way. Drink the same kind of coffee. Go to the same kind of places. Don't see the same kind of movies. And then we're all one. Now, even if you had that kind of uniformity, do you think you'd actually have true unity? 
Not at all, right? But if you have unity the way Paul is talking about here, particularly if you have the unity that verse 2 is talking about, not only do you not need uniformity, but you're going to actually have beautiful diversity flowing out. And that's so countercultural. And we'll get to that later in verses 7 through 11. But let me say that again. Just because you have uniformity on the outside doesn't mean you'll have unity on the inside. But if you've got unity on the inside, you don't need uniformity on the outside. So we don't need our kids to look the same way, act the same way. We can be different and love that about one another. Because unity is an issue of the heart. And the second thing Paul wants to teach us is that unity is grounded in the Trinity. Did you notice when Alan was reading this text, and that's why I love sometimes just having the word read, because you pick up things differently than when you would read them. You couldn't escape hearing the word one come out seven times in verses four through six. One, 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 one. Did you pick up on that? It's interesting that Paul also would say that each of of those seven references, three of them refer to the Trinity, and the other four ones refer to how we relate to the members of the Trinity. Verse 4, one spirit. Verse 5, one Lord, referencing Jesus. Verse 6, one God and Father. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. One, one, and one. And the other four ones are referring to how we relate to each member of the Trinity. Here's my point. Now, it would be interesting to unpack that, but I think the significance is this. Our unity is ultimately not found in the things of this earth, but in God himself. The fundamental character of unity is spiritual and is a work of God first and foremost. So the first thing about unity is that it's a heart issue. It's a heart issue because its character is is a spiritual issue. As I mentioned earlier, humanity loves to be unified. What's the name of the country we live in? The United States, right? And in the United States, we have the United Nations. And a part of the United Nations is the United Kingdom. And many of you have given to the United Way. I mean, just we like this sense of unity. We want things to be one. But think about this for a second in our culture. How do you reconcile this simultaneous desire for unity and community with the strongest kind of maybe um, cultural move of autonomy of the individual and individualism? Those two normally don't go well together, do they? They certainly don't in our culture. On the one hand, there's this drive that we want to be unified, but another thing that's a strong value in our culture is autonomy and individualism. Those two are very difficult to balance, and we never do that very well in our society. So, in our society, as a means to try to answer that conundrum, you hear people saying things that society should get rid of the distinctions that separate us, right? Sounds good on face value. Sounds really good. So get rid of racial distinctions. Let's get rid of ethnic distinctions. Let's get rid of gender distinctions. Let's get rid of socioeconomic distinctions. Let's get rid of religious distinctions. Everything should just be this blended one. Have you seen that kind of feeling in our culture? That Let's stop things that are different about us. Let's talk about the things that unite us. Now, that is a kind of unity, and that's why it's appealing. But it's a unity that lacks diversity in its core. Now, on the other hand, and you see this all over our society as well, this big call to embrace diversity in our society, right? It is everywhere. 
But it's a diversity without any sense of cohesion, without anything that weaves through all the different parts that unify them into one whole. So this last week, I got an invitation to join a a council in South Orange County of interfaith environmental advocates. Along with some rabbis, imams, priests, pastors, and monks, we're going to gather together and see what our faith can talk about in preserving the environment. Now, I'm all for the environment. On one level, I think that's a good idea. But as I read this letter, I thought, do you realize that in some of these theological views or some of these theologies of these other religious systems like Hinduism, that all of reality is maya. Everything's an illusion, so there's no driving impetus for the environment. doesn't matter, though, because we're all diverse and we're coming together. You see, on the one hand, I like what they're trying to do, but this is a diversity without any coherent reason to come bring it together and hold it together. It's kind of this patchwork quilt rather than this unified fabric holding it all together. You see, what we're seeing in our society is this, this impulse that we want unity, but there's also this drive for individualism and autonomy. If I can say it this way, it's the difference between a stew and a buffet. Now, don't get me wrong. I love stews. A good stew is a wonderful thing. But sometimes I would like my, my cannolis and my sushi kept separate. I don't want my pad thai and my, my uh, you know, burritos mixed together. I like that separate because I want to enjoy and appreciate the unique, distinct, beautiful flavors. Right? I, I don't want my sushi in, in a cannoli. That would just be odd and that would not work. So I don't want to just mash them together, but sometimes I do want to stew. The point is this. We like both, but we can't seem to have them both in our culture. It might work in food, but it doesn't seem to work in society. But the Christian worldview offers a way by which you actually can hold unity amongst diversity in community. Because at the very fountainhead of our faith system, We have this in our triune God. A God who is one, in diversity, composed of three persons, living in community, relating as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Unity and diversity in community in the Trinity. That is why, as human beings made in the image of God, we long to be one. At the same time, we long to be distinct and different and individuals. God made us that way because he's that way. But because of sin, the very things that were to define us and make us distinct, that makes us appreciate one another, have been used to divide one another. Not only do we see this within families and our own selves, we see this across our society. So we become nationalists, thinking that our country is better than other countries. Or we become racist, thinking that our race is better than another race. Or we become classist, thinking that my class is better than your class. Or chauvinist, or feminist, my gender is better than your gender. We have all these ists that separate us. That God, by his beautiful design, created a diverse world where all these things would complement one another to show the glorious, multifaceted beauty of who he is. And this was Paul's point in Ephesians 1 and 2. That all these barriers that we have erected have come down in Christ. And in Christ there is this new humanity, this new unity based on the very character and model of God himself. Being one, being diverse, and being in community and harmony. Now notice, all the uh, metaphors that we've been looking at in Ephesians 2 and a little bit in Ephesians 3 are getting at the same dynamic. 
If you're paying attention to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, and then Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, you'll see the same thing come out. I have a slide behind me. Notice the same element. Individual members of the same family. Individual bricks of the same temple. Individual inheritors of the same fortune. Individual citizens of the same kingdom. Individual partakers of the same promise. Individual parts of the same body. There's this beautiful diversity working in unity. And then Paul segues into making that point in verse 7. So we saw that unity is first and foremost a thing of the heart, an issue of the heart. Unity is grounded in the Trinity himself, and unity is strengthened through diversity. Notice as Paul goes to verse 7, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, excuse me, that's verse 8, but grace was given to each one of us. The reason that's significant is right on the heels of verse 6. When Paul is talking about this unity, God the Father of all, who is over all, 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 but God gives a gift to each. It's this unity in diversity that God has done this amazing thing, and he gives each of us a role to play in maintaining it. So from verses 1 through 6, Paul's emphasis is this great unity we have, this oneness And in verse 7 and following, he shows how that oneness can be maintained. And it's by each of us individuals exercising individual gifts. And and that's roughly what that quotation there in um, verse 8 and 9 is getting at. It's a quotation from Psalm chapter 68, verse 18. Uh, it, It is a psalm that is glorifying. It is magnifying what typically takes place after a, a victor comes home from battle and he receives all the bounty, all the, the spoils of war, we would say, and the king graciously distributes it to all the soldiers, to all the citizens. Paul, in the New Testament, through the inspiration of the Spirit, is applying that to Christ as Christ is made the victor over death and the grave and is restored to life, and he gives the spoils to all of his soldiers, to all of his citizens. That's what he's referring to. And those spoils are these beautiful gifts that build up the body. And so because we have this, this great model of unity, diversity, and community in, tr- in the Trinity, because we've been empowered through the work of Christ, that's what Paul taught in chapters 2 and 3, and he prayed for us in chapter 3, now he exhorts the Ephesians and us to live this out. But again, it's not in our own strength. So the unity was achieved not by our own ability. To maintain it is achieved not even by our own ability. It's all Christ. He says here, it is the gift that Christ gives. And then he goes into verse 11, this, this passage talking about, and we often talk about gifts that are given to people, and he's talking about gifts of people in this area. He's talking about the apostles, the prophets, and the pastor, teachers. And if you look at other what's called gift sections of the Bible, so you have Romans 12, if you're a note taker, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, 1 Peter 4 is another example. You could come up with about 20, uh, 20 gifts. The point isn't these are exhaustive lists of gifts, and this is all the gifts that there are. Paul is just in particular in, in Ephesians focusing on the teaching gifts. He's not saying the other gifts in, in, uh, in Romans and Corinthians are not important, but because Paul is talking about the nature and building of the church, he's focusing on the most important gift to that end, and that's the equipping of the saints through teaching God's Word. God's people are always created by God's Word. In Genesis 1, how did God make man? He spoke. 
In Genesis 12, when God called the people to himself through Abraham, what did he do? He called him to himself. In, in, in Exodus 20, when God created the nation of Israel, what did he do at the Mount Sinai? He gave them his word. The most vivid illustration of this is Ezekiel chapter 37. The prophet is seeing a valley of dry bones, and God says to him, do you see this valley of dry bones? Can they ever live? And he says, are you crazy? They're dry bones. God says to Ezekiel, speak. Ezekiel starts to prophesy, and what happens? The dry bones become an army and alive again. A vivid illustration that God's word always creates God's people. And that's why we put such a value on the teaching of the word. That's why we put a value on it in our own lives, because we want that work to continue. This new humanity was made possible through Christ. In the book of John's gospel, Christ is called what? The Word. God's people are always made by God's Word. And so when he's building his church, Paul is focusing on these teaching gifts, not to the exclusion of the others, but simply because when you're building the people of God, this is what you need to focus on. It's interesting. Look at verse 11 and 12 in particular. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. This is really critical that we get this. Notice verse 12. Who is being equipped for the work of ministry? The who? The body. It is the pastor's role to do what? To do all the ministry, right? You guys pay my salary, so you show up and watch me do ministry? That's not it, right? We're laughing because we know how silly that is, but functionally, do we live that way? Thank you that we don't. That's not true here. But I think a lot of times we believe that, hey, we've got, especially if you're in a larger church, we've got a large staff. That's what we pay them to do. We pay them to do the ministry. We show up and support it. That is not the picture of the New Testament. Can I say this? I don't get paid. Uh, I don't get paid to do what I do. Okay? I just want to be clear. I don't get paid to do what I do. I, and this, the reason I'm, I'm pausing, this distinction is critical. I receive a gracious salary from this church that sets me free full time to focus on the ministry God's given to me, as particularly in the context of this local body. I don't get paid to do this. You have all graciously allotted a salary for me and the other men on staff, the pastors on the staff, that sets us free to fulfill the calling God placed on us. You say, well, what's what's the difference? It is all the difference in the world. Being paid a salary doesn't make you a pastor. Being elected as an elder doesn't make you a pastor. You are those things. That's the gift that I have. I didn't become a pastor once I received the salary. As a matter of fact, for 11 years, I went broke funding my own ministry. And then by God's grace, I became a pastor on staff. But that didn't make me become a pastor. I was always doing that. Does that make sense? The ministry we share together, and I am a fortunate benefactor of the fact that I'm allowed full-time to focus on that, but I don't do all the ministry. God's Word says my primary role is to teach the Word to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You see, the danger is, though, the professionalization of the few inevitably leads to the marginalization of the many. That was a real packed sentence. Let me say it again. The professionalization of the few 
inevitably leads to the marginalization of the many. We tend to begin to think that, well, those are the ones that are the professionals. We'll leave ministry to them, and that's not it at all. That's why you will see me using the word elder more than you hear me use the word pastor. Okay? Number one, both of those words are synonymous in the New Testament. Those words are synonymous. One refers to the other. An elder refers to what a man is. A pastor refers to what that elder does. They are the same thing. One is a, a, a description of their character. The other is a description of the work that flows from their character. But what sometimes can happen is when we hear the word pastor, it professionalizes it, doesn't it? Because we often think the people on staff at a church. But when we hear the word elder, it democratizes it because we have this category even here at our church of elders. You just saw four of them. All of them are not receiving a salary. All of them serve because they love this congregation. So when we use the word elder, it democratizes it. It helps us understand that the ministry is all of us together. And so you'll hear me referring not to pastors, but to elders. Because I want in our minds a realization that this is all of us. Now, we do have few elders who are fortunate to be set apart from this, but we also have many elders, more elders, that are life insurance men, that are power plant workers, that are school teachers, police officers, software engineers, but they're just as much a pastor. A pastor is a full-time elder. An elder is a part-time pastor. You want to look at it that way. But they are the same thing. And when we democratize the ministry, more ministry gets done. And it's beautiful to see it happen. But it's so easy to fall in these other mindsets. I remember once uh, preaching through the book of Isaiah after I got to the sermon. After the service, a, a man came down to me. We'll call him Roger. Tears in his eyes and he was weeping because he was convicted of his sin of pornography and how it was destroying his, his life and his family because his family had no idea. It was a secret double life. And I said, Roger, we need to bring this out into the light. We need to let the light of truth shrivel this thing up that loves the mold and the darkness and all that. So over the course of three, four months, his wife and his family were brought into it, and it was hard, but beautiful to see the grace and truth fill this man up again. Well, six months later, Roger came up to me. He says, Pastor Rick, I've got a friend that same situation as he was in pornography, and would you just help him like you helped me? And I said, okay, you're coming to me. I guess I got to help you. I said, okay, Roger, I'll take care of it. And as I was walking away, I got, I realized by the conviction of the Spirit, I said, wait a minute. You just robbed Roger of this opportunity. So I, I went back and said, Roger, hold on a second. Uh, 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 I'm not going to talk to him. And he kind of looked at me like, why? What am I going to do now? I said, Roger, I can't think of anybody else in this congregation who better can minister to this man right now. I can't think of anybody who knows the ugliness and destructive power of sin and the beauty and liberating truth of the gospel than you do in this area right now. You are God's man for this job. And you know, his eyes. He, he got it. Instantly, he got it. And then there was this fear like, oh, I got it. I got this. This is my job now. And it was wonderful to see Roger come alongside him situation he felt was out of his league, ill-equipped to do, bumbled and stumbled, but seeing the grace of God use that very situation to bring life and truth into this other man's life. See, it's all of us. God has designed life so that each of our lives can minister to each of our lives. 
God deliberately does not create superstar Christians with all the gifts necessary to build up his church. The problem is in our culture, in our society, our book sales and all these things, we tend to think that. And we actually want that sometimes. But that is not the New Testament model of church ministry. God deliberately handicaps us so that he keeps us dependent on him and on each other. Look at Ephesians 4 and verse 7 again. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Each one of you here can contribute to every one of you here. Now, not, not all at once, not all the same time, not in every way, but each one of you can contribute to every one of you. If it all rested on Jared, Tim, my shoulders, the elders of this church, it's going to fall apart. And you know that. You know that. It's not because we're not going to try. It's not because we're not godly men. It's because that wasn't God's plan to begin with. He designed the church to do this amazing thing. So at the most basic level, let's make this, let's put something in your lunchbox. Let's make it really practical. At the most basic level, do you know what this means? That your attendance on Sunday morning is a ministry. That you just being here on Sunday, you just being at your growth group throughout the week or later in the afternoon is a ministry if your eyes and ears are open and if you're trying to cultivate the virtues that Paul talks about in verse 2 of this chapter. Uh, To quote the American intellectual Woody Allen, 80% of life is just showing up, right? 80% of life is just showing up. Do you know what happens when you don't show up here on a Sunday or you don't go to growth group? You know what happens? It's not just you that's being impacted, but the gifts that God has given to you don't show up either. When you don't show up here and sit in your usual spot or in your growth group, the gifts God has given you for the benefit of others don't show up with you. You're so busy thinking about what can the church give for me, we forget I can give something back to everyone else. And sometimes churches play into that to our detriment because we want people here, right? We want to fill up the pews. We are here to meet your needs. And in one sense, they're absolutely right. The church is here to meet the needs. The idea is not the institutional building, it's the people in the building. That's how we meet the needs. Your encouragement, your testimony, your life through adversity, your joy, your indomitable spirit, your perseverance, your faith, those aren't here for others who might need them when you don't show up. Do you ever think about attending Sunday morning like that? That when you show up and sit where you sit, that others might be watching you. When people know about your struggle, that they're watching you from a distance. This is the discipleship of the body. We're so used to discipleship as a one-on-one thing, and that's great. But do you realize you're discipling each other every day the way you live your lives? You're discipling me. I get more discipleship by watching other people. I'm a people watcher, but I'm always discipled by people. Especially when I was young. Especially when I was young always being discipled by the church I was a part of, and they didn't even know it. I didn't show up saying, hey, you're all discipling me, so be on your best behavior. That wasn't it at all. I didn't even realize that was happening. I showed up realizing these are people that I can learn to be like Christ from. That's what we all are. Let me say this. Your joy in your church is in direct proportion to the exercise of the gifts you've been given. 
Your joy in this church or any church will be in direct proportion to the exercise of the gifts you've been given. God designed the church to function that way. So the question you have to ask, that we have to ask ourselves, is do you know what those gifts are? Do you know what those gifts are? If you do, are you using them for the benefit of others? Are you using those gifts for the benefit of others? Because the gift was given to you not to bless you. The gift was given to you as a stewardship responsibility to give it to others. Now, if you don't know what your gifts are, and you know, I, I just wish there was a kind of a magical way we could do that. You remember that Harry Potter movie where they would put that hat on the kids and they would say, Gryffindor, and they would go to the Gryffindor. We don't have anything like that. What you can do to find out your gifts is show up. It's just show up and serve. Bottom line. What's going to happen is you're going to realize, oh, I really enjoy doing this. And people are going to come up to you and say, man, I'm really encouraged by you doing that. Or you're going to notice the fruit in your life coming from that. And you're going to realize, this is probably how I'm gifted. That could be very, the very same thing that could happen to you. Is that people will come up and say, I've been so encouraged by that. You can realize that that is the gift. That is your contribution to the body of Christ. Now, it also could be that it works another way. I mean, just because you're a singer doesn't mean you should be on the praise team. Maybe you need to clean toilets, right? I mean, it's not always that whatever you're strong at, God wants you to do that for the church because God says, I work my strength through your weakness. So maybe the thing you hate the most, do that. So we got tons of kids hiding in the office said, this is great. We've got 10, I think, 10 opportunities for people to get involved right now. How hard is it to just volunteer to hold a baby? Right? And that's, well, actually, depending on the baby, um, there's a woman holding the baby, and she's having a great time out there. She's loving it. See, but the point is, how hard is it to show up and say, you know what, I'll, I'll hold the baby? How hard is it to show up and say, I'll serve some coffee? Aren't you glad somebody's doing that? Aren't you glad you show up, there's a, a chocolate-covered donut for you? Somebody said, you know what, I can do that. I don't know what my gifts might be. They, they may not be spectacular, worship-leading, doing all these other things, but I can put out a donut I can clean a latrine. You know, that was my first job at a church, was the janitor. I was the most excited janitor at this. I had the keys to the church. I was the janitor. But I also taught hermeneutics at night. But the great thing was that church taught me that it doesn't matter what your title is, you've been given a gift, and you've got to use that gift. And as the janitor, I'm probably the only church janitor that, that got called to do a demon exorcism, too. I was like, this was not in the job description. The pastor said, hey, just show up and God will use you. That's my point. Just show up. Now, you may not be called to, to do a demon exorcism or call, hold a baby, or maybe that's one and the same in your mind. I don't know. But God wants to use the body for the benefit of the body. And it takes all of us to do it, doesn't it? Last point. Ah, unity. Uh, verses 12 to 16, unity leads to this ministry, maturity, and stability. So unity has this inward element because it begins in our heart. It's a heart issue first and foremost. Unity has an upward element because our unity is grounded in the character of God himself. Unity has this outward element because it requires all of us to be participating in bringing that. And unity has this downward element because as we do these prior three, we grow in maturity and that brings stability. And it's a feedback loop. That maturity and stability spreads into all these other elements. 
And Paul goes on to list beautifully contrasting how we're not tossed to and fro anymore, but are grounded, are solid. And in a world that is tossed to and fro, even on this issue of unity and diversity, the gospel has something to offer, and the church is the place people see that most clearly. And so tonight, this morning, we are going to actually going to be able to practice in a visible way the unity we have in Christ. You see before me the, the bread and the cup. This is something we do to practice the unity we have in Christ, that we are all parts, little crumbs off the same loaf, that we all partake out of the same cup. This is something we do together. And if you are visiting with us, we have what here, basically an open table. As long as you can partake in com- uh, communion at your home church, we'd love for you to, to partake with us. The only caveat is that you need to be in a place where you take seriously what this means. There's sin in your life, and you know if there is or not. And, and you know what, if you're struggling, I'm not talking about if you're struggling with sin. I'm talking about if you are in your sin. If that's going on, don't come down and take, please. For your own soul's sake, don't come down. But if you are struggling with sin, then come on down all the more. Lord, all that to say is that we have an open table. We want everyone to be able to participate who can of the life and death that these elements represent in our lives. And this is a sign of our unity. As you take from this one loaf, you're taking a chunk out of that. They're the same. As you're dipping into this one cup, you're taking a bit of that. And they're the same. 